a place I'd rather be. That's a great song for this morning. Certainly true for me. I hope it is for you today. So exciting to see some dirt moving out there. So somebody suggested we should have a, uh, what was that thing you suggested, Tom? We should have a mud truck something out there. There's a lot of mud out there, you know, so I don't know. Charge a lot of money, Reinholds. They'd probably pay money to come see that out there. But anyways, I don't think that's happening, but it was a nice idea. <laughs> nice idea. So we're looking forward to that, praying that the weather holds, it can rain every weekend for the next month as long as it's dry all week long and the guys will keep moving forward on that project. But it is great to have you here with us on this uh, Thanksgiving weekend as we're looking forward to and anticipating celebrating uh, Thanksgiving this week and uh, doing that with our families and hopefully you have some plans to be able to do that with people you can enjoy time with this weekend. Well, I went to a small private high school in uh, Glen Burnie, Maryland and um, uh, did not attend many parties in high schools. My parents were pretty strict and didn't allow me to go to many places on a rare occasion that they would allow me to go somewhere. They had to know who I was with, where I was going, what was happening, when it was going to be done, uh, a lot of tight guidelines around this. So on this particular evening, I was at my senior year, uh, some friends were having a Halloween party, so I said they invited me to come. I said I'd love to come. So I uh, didn't tell my parents a whole lot, left it very vague, which is the better course of action in, in, with, in that situation, but um, watched a movie that would not have been on the approved movie list, you know, for Halloween, um, hung out a little bit, and then was invited by the mother of the, the girl that was hosting the party to go through the neighborhood and prank houses in the neighborhood, you know, and I thought, well, if the mom's inviting me to go, surely my dad would think it would be okay, you know. So we went around and did this and uh, happened to stop at the house of the, um, the pastor's church that ran the school. And so she stood at the door and kept him distracted while his son and I soaked his car up, you know, that evening. And uh, we unfortunately were having such a good time that I didn't get back home when I was supposed to be back to the, her house. And so my ride to pick me up showed up and I was not there. And that didn't go well for, my, for me a little bit later And the party did not end very well for me. Um, We've all had those occasions in life where we're having a good time. Life seems to be moving along smooth without any hiccups, without any glitches. And then suddenly, without warning, it goes south on us. And we don't really know exactly what happened. Your team's playing great. You're cheering them on. Maybe you're a part of the team. And then somehow, midway through the fourth quarter, whatever was working stopped working. The other team turned the tie, the momentum, and your team unexpectedly lost. Um, you were in a relationship that was meaningful to you, and you thought everything was fine, and suddenly you find out it's not fine. It's really in bad, bad shape. Tragically, we got a glimpse of this in 2018 when the housing market suddenly collapsed. And when those occasions occur, we're like, what happened? You know, who messed this up? Who's responsible? And very rarely do we take an inward look and say, huh, I wonder what I might have contributed to this. I wonder what my part in causing this might be. We rarely do that. We're always looking, especially in our culture today, for someone else to blame. And one of the people that gets the blame often is God. You know, God, you messed this up. God, why did you do this? God, where in the world are you? Why is all this stuff happening? What is going on? And today we're going to look at the life of a man in a similar situation that we looked at last week. If you were here this last week, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, a man who had everything you could imagine, and life took a downward turn for him in a way he never dreamed possible. And it wasn't until he's willing to be honest and face the truth of who he was and what was going on in his life that his story turned around. And so we're going to look at another guy this week and see what happens at the end of his story. 
If you haven't been here with us, we're in a series entitled Thriving in Babylon. It's a series of stories about a group of young men um, who were captured from their homes and they were transported a thousand miles away, um, stripped of everything that, they, that they've known, stripped of their names, stripped of their culture, stripped of their identity, stripped of their heritage, stripped of their history, and attempted to be stripped of their faith. But over the last few weeks, we've seen these remarkable stories through a series of dreams, remarkable experiences with fire in which God showed up in these men, young men's lives. And they discovered that their faith was not dead. As a matter of fact, it was incredibly alive. And we saw a God who not only uh, revealed his truth to them, but he rescued them and last week reminded them that he is the God who is in charge of everything. And so this morning, we're going to look at the story of another man, another man who was faced with the truth of who he was and see what he did with it. And we're going to see the reality of this statement that unbridled arrogance leads to devastating results. Unbridled arrogance leads to devastating re results. No one, regardless if you've been a person of faith for many years or you're just exploring matters of faith, wants life to kind of fall off the map, wants things to end badly. And this morning, we're going to look at the story of this man, and my hope is that it provides some insight for you, some things to explore in your own life and in your own faith and in your own journey. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to Daniel chapter 5, Daniel chapter 5, uh, the Bible's on the seat in front of you, uh, the rack in front of you, it's page five, uh, 724, page 724. And as you're turning there, uh, you can also follow along in your phone or wireless device uh, as you're turning there. Um, let me just remind you a little bit of what happened last week. Last week, we looked at this king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who he was ruling the world. He had uh, the biggest, it was the, the largest ruling force of that day. And he spent some time admiring all he had accomplished. But God said, when you do that, there's something devastating going to happen to you. And so what happened? He was driven away from his people. He ate grass like an ox. His hair grew like feathers and his nails like the claws of a bird. He was actually living out in the wild. We don't know if he lost his mind. We don't know if he was struck with some type of disorder. We don't quite know, but he, he lived in the wild for an extended period of time. But then something happened. At the end of that time, something happened. And what happened was he changed his perspective. He raised his eyes towards heaven. His sanity was restored. And then what did he do? Instead of praising himself, he praised the Lord Most High. And the result was, um, when his sanity was restored, he became even greater than before. Incredible transformation in this guy's life. And his final thoughts as we left him last week were this, I'm going to praise and exalt and glorify the King of the heaven, and he says, those who walk in pride, God will humble them. Those who walk in pride, God will humble them. And we talked last week about the critical nature of looking at this personally. Not just to say, wealthy people shouldn't be proud, rich people shouldn't be proud, powerful people shouldn't be proud. We ch I challenge you to look in the mirror and say, what about me? Where am I proud in my life? Where is it all about me? About I. About I. And not about God. And one of the ways to face that is not only to surrender daily every part of your life to him, but just say, God, what am I thankful for today? What am I thankful for today? I want to give you just a minute, and uh, if you have your 
program there with you, pull it, grab a pen in front of you. If you don't have something, find something and grab a pen. I'm going to give you one minute, and I want you just to write down some things that you are thankful for this morning. Take your phone out, open the notes section. I'm going to give you one minute just to do that, okay? Everybody got something to write with? All right, one minute. You can start now. Thirty more seconds. Five seconds. Just a minute to pause, and I challenge you, and I don't know if any of you did it this week. I know I did not. That's why I wanted you to do it, so I would do it as well. But I hope the next few days that you pause and just take some time, even a minute, and say, God, what am I thankful for today? What am I thankful for today? Because one of the ways to humble yourself, one of the ways to put a stake in the heart of pride is to express gratitude. Gratitude. Gratitude to God gratitude to others for the things that have happened in your life. You know, the stories in the book of Daniel that we've been looking at are not, some of them are in order, but it's not designed to be chronological in order. So this happens, and this happens, and this happens, and then this happens. Like when we read history, we have these things organized. They're rather designed in a way to tell a story about God. It's not a historical document, it's a theological document. And so the story we're going to look at this morning in Daniel chapter 5, actually Daniel chapter 7 and 8 happened before Daniel chapter 5. But, oh, it's still ringing. I don't know why it's doing that. I must have reset it. So, um, so chapter 5, as you look at chapter 5 verse 1, there's a new king in town. There's a new guy on the throne, and his name's Belshazzar. How did, how did we get from Nebuchadnezzar to Belshazzar? Well, let me just take you a little, give you a little bit of a history lesson. Um, so Nebuchadnezzar reigned for 46 years. When he stepped down, his son Merodach reigned for one year. And then Neraglesar, he reigned for four years. Um, Labashai Marduk, he only reigned for a month. And then he was assassinated by a group of individuals uh, connected to Nabadanus, who was uh, apparently being sourced by his son, Belshazzar. Uh, so this was kind of the king of the month club after Nebuchadnezzar reigned for a very, very long time. Um, but these guys kept rolling in and kept rolling in and kept rolling in. And I thought to myself, during this whole time, Daniel's around. And at one point, if you go back and read a couple of the stories, he was a pretty influential person in the kingdom. And he had been given significance he had been given influence. He was being treated well. And then the king that honored and respected him was gone. And another king, and another king, and another king, and then a puppet king, 
and then another king. And I have to imagine, before we even get into this story in chapter 5, that Daniel was probably wondering, God, what in the world are you doing? What in the world are you doing? You took me out of my homeland. You put me through this series of tests. My guys, we all passed the test. You honored us. You gave us significance and influence. And now all that is gone. And now it's all gone. What are you doing, God? What are you doing? And it can be real easy for us in our lives when life is not going the way we want it to go, the way I want it to go, the way you want it to go, to conclude God has forgotten about me. To conclude, God, I guess this is outside of your scope. It's too big for you. One of those two things. And one of the things I hope you walk away this morning is remembering that no matter how bad life gets, God's still in charge. And He still cares and is with you. So what happened in the story? Well, in the story, King Belshazzar, he was throwing the party of the year. The party of the year. It was the Emmys, the Oscars, the People's Choice, the Kennedy Centers, and everything else you can imagine rolled up into one. Look in verse 1 at what he says. It says, he gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Thousands of his closest friends all together. So why the big party? Why the big party? Well, sometimes they would throw a big party to show the strength and power of their empire. It was kind of an odd time to do that in light of everything that was happening around him. You say, what was happening around him? Well, a little bit more history. At this point in time, Cyrus the Persian had defeated Belshazzar's father who lived about 50 miles away. It actually just defeated him just recently. And his troops had set up siege around the capital city of Babylon. But Belshazzar wasn't worried because they had stockpiled enough food that they could live for years inside of this city. Years. Because what they would do is they cut off the food, cut off the trade routes so that they would eventually starve the people out. But Belshazzar wasn't worried. Was it to rally everyone? Was it to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die? We don't really know. We don't really know. But they were having a great time. And while they were having a great time, they were enjoying themselves so much, Belshazzar said, hey, get those Jewish holy cups. Let's bring them in. And let's celebrate our success, the fact that even the God of the Jews, he can't defeat us. And so that's what he did. He gave orders to bring them in so that everyone, the king, his nobles, his wives, his concubines, might drink from them. And that's exactly what they did. They brought them all in, and they drank from all of them. And we don't know what these were used for in the Jewish community. We simply know that they were part of the temple. And when, Nebuchadnezzar, when King Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Jewish community, he stripped the temple of all the valuables, took them, and put them into his treasury. Um, not only for just the value of them, but symbolically to picture that he and his gods had defeated the Jews and their God. But Belshazzar took another step further, because not only did he drink from them, but look what it goes on to say in verse 4. It says, as they drank wine, they praised the gods, their gods of gold, their gods of silver, their gods of bronze, their gods of iron, their gods of wood, and their god of stone. What was the point of doing all of this? 
Well, the point of some of it may be to show that he was more powerful than his ancestor, his father. You, you say, John, why do you keep saying father? That was like five generations back. Well, in that culture, father could be, refer, could be used, not just a biological father, the one that gave birth to you, but any revered and honored relative, even generations back. Maybe it was to say, I'm, I've done a lot better than you, Dad. Maybe it was just to shake a hand in the fist of God. You see, what you discover a little bit later in chapter 8 is that Daniel had had a dream. And in Daniel's dream, he dreamed that Belshazzar was going to be defeated. And so he knew this was going to happen. Other Israelite prophets were prophesying that this nation was about to be defeated. And so he does more than just drink from the holy cups. They worship their gods while they're doing so. It's as if he spits in the eye of God if you will, toasting to his God, his statues that he believed would protect him and would guard him. Unbridled arrogance, unbridled arrogance leads to devastating results. And suddenly, without warning, in the midst of this party, look what happens. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He's so frightened his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. What happened? A disembodied hand starts writing on the wall and the king's response, pale, his legs weak, his knees knocking. One commentator said, literally the king was so traumatized he wet himself. I mean, he was scared stiff. He was scared stiff. This whole idea of the hand of God was not a foreign concept to the Jewish people of that day, maybe to people who are non-Jews, but to the Jewish people. They had seen the Egyptian the magicians during the captivity of Israel experience the hand of God. And Moses had testified that it was the finger of God that had written the Ten Commandments on the stone tablets that were brought down by Moses from the mountains. And in Psalm 8, it says the heavens are the work of his fingers. But Belshazzar had never experienced anything like this before. And so what did he do? Well, he brought in his trusted advisors, who had been completely helpless up to this point in every story that we've read. Um, and so why not bring in the guys that can't help you? Let's, let's let them try to help us again. So, um, you know, I joke about it. It's kind of like a teenager asking his friends to help him solve a problem, you know, um, the blind leading the blind. So... Uh, this king summoned the enchanters, the astrologers, and the div diviners. And they said to these wise men, whoever reads this writing tells me what it means, will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain placed around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler of the kingdom. Promise of reward. It's like Survivor. The winner gets reward, right? So all you got to do is interpret what these words that were written on the wall. Shopping spree at your favorite clothing store. Gold chain around your neck. Third highest ruler of the the land. And so these guys looked at it, and they all came in. They couldn't read the writing or tell the king what it meant. They say, why not? Why not? We don't know if it was written in code, if it was a language they didn't know, but it didn't calm the king's heart. It actually made his heart more traumatized, became even more trembling, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. So suddenly, this place goes from party central to deathly silent. And mom shows up and says, what in the world is going on in here? The queen 
say the queen. Does that mean his wife, the king's wife? Not necessarily. Some commentators suggested it could be the queen mother, so it could be his mother or even his grandmother shows up in the room and say, what in the world is going on in here? What's happening? Don't be alarmed. What are you looking so pale in the face for? You know, go eat some food or splash your face with water. Do something. Shake out of this, you know. Then look at what she says to him in verse 11. There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he had insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him the chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind, knowledge, and understanding. He could interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Call for Daniel, and he'll tell you what this means. Now, remember who he called earlier? He called all the magicians and the enchanters and diviners. And remember that Daniel had been made the chief of all of them, but somehow he had been demoted. We don't know exactly how. Somehow he had been moved out of that place of position, moved out of that place of significance and authority, moved off the radar, likely wondering, what's God up to? Where in the world is God in all of this? And in God's own divine sense of humor, he uses the king's, likely the king's mother, to set him straight. Moms have a way of doing that, don't they? They set the even the one who's the king, straight. And she says, don't you remember that guy? Don't you remember that guy? He's the guy that could solve the problems. He's the guy that was smarter than everybody. He's the guy that your father put in this position. You know, it sounds a little bit like what often happens in a company where a new regime comes in, a new owner takes over the company, and they clean house, and they move out the people that know how the business is supposed to work, have made it work for decades, and they replace it with a bunch of yes people that don't have any idea how to run the business, but just nod their head and do whatever they're told. Seems a little bit like that, doesn't it? Daniel got moved out. He got pushed aside. He was off the radar, but God said, no, I'm not done with you yet, Daniel. And sometimes when life feels out of control and we wonder what God's up to and what he's doing, when unbridled arrogance seems to be reigning strong, God shows up and reminds us that he's still at work. He's still paying attention because unbridled arrogance leads to devastating results. So what happens next? What happens next? Well, the the king decides to bring Daniel in. And remember, Daniel was the chief of the magicians. Daniel was an influential man. Daniel, by this time, has probably gotten to be quite a bit older. We don't know exactly how old, but there's a good possibility he was even older than the king. He was a man highly respected, revered. And so what is the king, how does the king speak to Daniel? Former chief musician, one who has the spirit of the holy gods. Now look what he says to him. He says, are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king brought? Are you one of those exiles? Are you one of those guys? Um, condescending, belittling, demeaning. Notice how he goes on to talk to Daniel in the next verse. I've heard, I've heard, not I know that you can do this. I've heard that the Spirit of God is with you inside intelligence, outstanding wisdom, 
the wise men they brought in here, they had no clue. I heard you were able to give interpretations, solve problems. If you can read this, you'll win the prize of the month. That's what you'll win. Daniel was not impressed at all. Not impressed. And I found myself thinking, what would it have been like to be Daniel in this situation? I mean, he knew this guy was going down. He prophesied about it if you read ahead in chapter 8. He knew he was going down. He had been pushed aside. He had been marginalized. He was no longer in the position that he had been placed into before. The guy was making a mockery of his God by worshiping his gods with items from the Jewish temple. And he brings in him, him in and says, aren't you one of those guys? I've heard this. I don't know if it's really true. It's kind of rumor. The, my mom said it. You know, moms, they, they say things just to get you to do things. I don't know if I can believe everything that, you know, they say. What does Daniel do? How does Daniel respond? Well, verse 17, Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts. Keep your gifts. But I'll tell you what's going down. Your majesty, the most high God, gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty, greatness, glory, and splendor. Daniel starts right away with giving credit back to God. Right away, he turns the attention back to God. He goes on to say, because of the high position, all the nations and people dreaded and feared him. Anybody the king wanted to put to death, he put him to death. Anybody the king was going to spare, he spared. Anybody the king was going to promote, he promoted Anybody the king was going to humble, he humbled him. He goes on to say, but when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his throne and stripped of his glory. We read this earlier. He was driven away, lived like an animal, his body drenched, until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign, and he's the one that is in charge, sets over them anything he wishes. Daniel immediately gave credit and honor back to God. And I find myself um, kind of amazed at his response in this situation. Because there has to be inside of him, as a man, battling the humiliation, the shaming that this guy tried to place upon him. But instead of turning that against him personally, he turned back to God and said, this is the God who has done this. And this is the God who did this to your father. And this is what your father did. And your father learned a lesson and he became greater than he'd ever been before. But not so with you. You, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself though you knew all of this. Though you knew all of this. He paints a very powerful picture. He says, when you know the past... And you ignore the past. And you don't learn lessons from the past. You set yourself up proudly, arrogantly to fail in the future. Let me say that again. When you know the past, when you ignore the past, you set yourself up for failure in the future. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors, he's talking about Jews before him, were under the cloud, passed through the sea, they were baptized by Moses, they ate food and they drank food, and they came through the wilderness. 
He says, God was not pleased with them. And then listen what he says in verse 6. These things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. And he goes on to describe it a little bit more. You know, we read these stories in the Bible. Some of them you've learned as kids. Some of them you're just discovering them now. They're not just historical facts. They're lessons for you and I to grab hold of, to embrace, so that our hearts don't become hardened and our hearts don't become arrogant because unbridled arrogance results leads to devastating results. He then goes on to say to him, instead, and look at how many times he has said the word you, You've set yourself up against the Lord of the heavens. You had the goblets from his temples brought to you. You and your nobles, your wives, oops, forgot one, your concubines drank from the wine from them. You praise the God of silver, gold, bronze, iron, etc., which cannot see or hear. But you do not honor the God who holds his life in your hand and all of his ways. You, 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 you. What does God say? He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Unbridled arrogance leads to devastating results. The truth is, he said to him, he said, you did not honor the God, let me go back to that, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life. In essence, he said to him, you do not recognize that there is only one God of the heavens And there's only one place you can turn your love and your affection and your attention and your devotion, and that's to the God of heavens. The only God who can be God in your life is the God of the heavens. Your God cannot be your job. Your God cannot be your spouse. Your God cannot be your children or your grandchildren. Your God cannot be your family. Your God cannot be your security. Your God cannot be your intelligence, your education, your occupation, your athletic ability, your 401k and your retirement plans. Your God cannot be any of those things. And so we can look at this guy decades and centuries ago and say he was proud and he was arrogant and he didn't pay attention to the God of the heavens. Or we can look at our own lives and say, what has taken the place of God in my life? What has become an idol in my life? What consumes my thoughts and my mind and my attention and my affection? The Bible says that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for your attention. He's jealous for your devotion. And He's jealous for your surrender. Unbridled arrogance always leads to a devastating result. Finally, he gets to the explanation. Daniel says, there was a hand, and it wrote this, mene, mene, tekel, parsane. And he says, what does that mean? The first mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Your days are numbered. Tekel, you've been found weighed on the scales, and the scales are tipped, and they are not in your favor. They are against you. And lastly, Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. No second chance. 
No opportunity to repent. He knew the truth. He knew of God's power. He knew of his father's pride and arrogance and judgment and repentance. And he turned his back on all of those. God's very clear that if you shake your fist in the face of God, if you mock the God of the heavens, consequences will come from that. Galatians chapter 6 Verse 3 says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, you deceive yourselves. Each one should test their own actions. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. man reaps what he sows. And sometimes what we fail to do is we fail to look in the mirror and examine our actions when things go south. And instead of saying, God, why are you doing this? We don't look in the mirror and say, God, What do I need to look at? What do I need to give attention to? What do I need to change? Just like I, that night of that Halloween party, naively assumed that doing that with this, the mom of the the girl whose house the party was at, my dad would be okay with. He wasn't. And I got stuck at home for the next six weeks as a consequence, as a result of that. But I still didn't think it was fair. I wasn't willing to look in the mirror at myself and my choices and my decisions. And each one of us have to decide if we're willing to do that. You see, this guy, Belteshazzar, he didn't get a second chance. That night, king of the Babylonians faced his death. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. You see, the Medes had surrounded the city. They had cut off the moat that they thought was going to preserve them. So the water flow did not go in, and they drained the water out the other side, and they crawled underneath the city walls, and they came up inside the city that they thought they would be protected. They thought their gods would protect them, and they lost their life that night. Unbridled arrogance always leads to devastating results. But the the reality for you and I today is that there's still hope. There's still hope. God says, you have an opportunity to turn to me. God's arms are open wide, and he's inviting you to a different kind of banquet. A different kind of banquet. A banquet that anyone, whosoever will, can come. A banquet that is open to all, but a banquet that God knows that those with a proud heart, with an arrogant heart, will say, I don't need that. I'm good without that. I came because someone told me I needed to come or a spouse or a boyfriend or girlfriend drug me here, but I don't really need that God stuff. You need that. That's good for you. It'll help you, but I don't need that. God says, for those who are humble, for those who are willing to say, I need God. I can't do this on my own. I can't navigate this life on my own. He stands there with his arms open wide and says, you're invited to come in today. You're invited to come in today. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you will look at your own heart and you won't just say, that was an arrogant guy and he got what he deserved. But you will say, God, where is the arrogance show up in my heart and in my life? Where does it creep in? Where am I unwilling to surrender to you? Where am I not grateful and acknowledge you've provided everything that I have? 
because I don't want to end up in the place that those guys did with the devastating, this guy did with the devastating result. Would you bow your as we close in prayer this morning? And as we do, I just want to give you a moment to talk to God about where you are. And if your heart is humble before God and you just say, God, I'm, you have blessed me greatly. You have given me many good things. And they all come from your hand. Would you just be able to tell God that this morning? And if there are areas in your life where God's been poking at your heart this morning and you've just been saying, and, and God's saying, that's one you want to be in charge of. You want to run the show. You want to make sure everything's under control in that area of your life. Can you open your hands and let that one go? Can you give that one to me? Can you just say, God, I surrender and fill in the blank? And maybe for you, this morning is a morning where God's been saying, you know, you've made your life all about you. And I haven't really been a part of it. Sure, you show up on Sunday and you come, but I'm nowhere on the radar all week long. God says, I want to be the God of every day of your life, every hour of your day. Would you just be willing to say, God, today I, I want to give my life over to you. I don't know what it means. I don't know exactly how to do that. But today is the day I want to follow you. God, it's almost embarrassing how easily this pride can creep into our lives. We can easily look at people in power, people with wealth and resources and say they're pride and they're arrogant, but it's really hard to look in the mirror and say, God, I am proud and I am arrogant. God, point those things out, those blind spots, those things we can't see. Help us not to ignore the lessons from the past and grab hold of them to shape the way that we live in the future. God, help us to admit that everything in our lives comes from you and be willing to surrender our entire lives to you today. God, we need your help to do this. We can't do this on our own.